Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Quoting a Utah official here, the city's atmosphere can be cleared of smoke and grime, but not in a single day or year, not by a single group or group of persons, not by a single invention or without efforts or price. There's nothing magical going to happen. It will take properly guided, united, and continued effort to solve the problem. That's George Snow, Chief of Salt Lake Bureau of Mechanical Inspection, speaking in February of 1917. New research traces the history of air quality in Utah from the mid-19th century. That paper is titled The History of Air Quality in Utah, a Narrative Review. It's published in the journal Sustainability. The authors are Logan Mitchell, affiliated faculty in the University of Utah's Department of Atmospheric Sciences, and Chris Zakowski, who earned a Ph.D. at University of Utah, is now at Old Dominion University. And Professor Mitchell joins us today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, so, uh, why a narrative review of air quality, Utah? What were you hoping to uh, demonstrate here to learn? Well, this whole thing started because I was working on a paper and I wanted to write kind of an introductory paragraph saying, you know, air quality, we know air quality is a big issue today, but, you know, air quality has been an issue since, you know, X date. And I wanted to know what that date was. And so I started looking around for some resources about, you know, when air quality really became an issue in Utah. And it just led me down this rabbit hole, this fantastic story that, you know, hasn't really been told in its, in, in its totality anywhere. And so that has, you know, led me to unearth all of these really fantastic resources and, and really uh, discover the you know, this this really impressive story of trying to address air quality over the years and, and making actually substantial progress over time. Um, so it's been really interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. Uh, interesting to look back, right? Um, and it's all there from the beginning, right? To just as soon as... Uh, as soon as people started using, I guess, uh, energy, right? Um, so, you know, the science, public opinion, uh, industry, pushback misinformation. <laughs> we'll, we'll get into all of it. Um, but so what did you do? How did you uh, how did you do this? What were your methods? Yeah, so at the beginning, I, I started looking into this right about the time that the, the COVID lockdowns were occurring, actually. And so, you know, we're, I was just stuck at home like everybody else. And um, the the Marriott Library at the University of Utah has a um, has been scanning all of these old newspaper articles, and they've scanned. You know, there's still there's still sections of time they're working on, but you know, all of these old newspapers are scanned and text searchable. And so, um, I started looking back and trying to search for keywords like air quality, um, and and things like that. And then going back, and I, I was I was getting stuck at a certain time, kind of in the 1950s, but then. I realized, oh, the terminology that, that that was used to talk about air quality changes around then. And as you go further back, they just talk about smoke. And then um, because you can see the smoke coming out of chimneys or things like that or vehicles, and that's how they referred to air quality back then. And then once I figured out the right keywords to look for, you can actually go back all the way to the beginning of the, the newspaper archive. It's really fantastic. Yeah, it seems like smoke and the, uh, smoke expert. We'll talk about some smoke exper- experts as we go along. I like the keyword nuisance. Was that we guys said that was a word used? Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a public nuisance, public health nuisance. 
Uh, so the, all these use these to search these uh, these archives. By the way, you know a lot of these papers are no longer with us, right? To the Telegram, the Herald. It was kind of fun to go back and, and see those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting to see how the the names of the newspapers have changed over time, including editorial cartoons. And you you have a few of these in there. Um, so uh, you said your question was, uh, you know, uh, air quality. We started uh, being concerned about air quality starting at X date. What what was the X date that you found? Well, one of the earliest uh, mentions of air quality actually comes from Brigham Young in 1860. And in one of his, uh, you know, his, his talks, he says, you know, what constitutes health, wealth, joy, and peace? In the first place, good, pure air is the greatest sustainer of animal life. And other elements we can dispense with for a time, but, you know, clean air is the most essential every moment. And the context that he was talking about is the importance of having good ventilation in, in your home. And so he's really thinking about indoor air quality. In fact, then, you know, if you didn't construct your chimney correctly, you know, that smoke would get trapped inside your house and people died. It was a real... Um, you know, health concern and risk uh, for for the pioneers and people living at that time. And so this is just, you know, really practical, like, hey, don't die in your home sort of sort of advice. Um, and it's and it's really fascinating to me because this, you know, it's, it was talking about this in 1860. And and now today, uh, in the last six months, we're seeing a lot of research about the, the health risks from natural gas combustion in the home, like using your natural gas for your stove. Actually, your stove actually leaks a little bit even when it's off, and there's lots of VOCs and, and hazardous chemicals that are coming out of your stove. And so it almost seems like we've come full circle. <laughs> yeah, there's a through line there for sure, isn't it? Uh, Brigham Young is also talking about uh, linking air quality, air, pure air, as he calls it, uh, to quality of life, right? He, he puts it right at the top. That's right. Yeah. And, and, and that is a theme that, that you see throughout Utah's history, that the importance of you know, clean air and good quality of life and, and also balancing economic growth. Um, we, we see that throughout, throughout our history. Uh, so that was, uh, Brigham Young was talking about uh, we're at burning wood, right, for, for heat, for, for energy. Uh, then I guess next up comes coal. That's the, the next big energy source. Yeah. And this is really, this is, to me, this is the answer to that, you know, when did uh, it really start to become a major public health issue uh, in, you know, along the Wasatch Front? And and that is, um, you start seeing editorials about it in the 1880s. Um, so in 1881, the Deseret Evening News published uh, in, an editorial about the nuisance of smoke. Um, and they, you know, they said, Salt Lake's beginning to suffer uh, from the, from, in some degree from the effects of the smoke nuisance and judging from the dense clouds, which arise especially in the evening from the central part of the city, the time is not far distant when some regulation is gonna, will need to be adopted and enforced here in order to abate it. <clears throat> but would it not be just as well for the businesses to, that, that use coal in large quantities to, to look around for some remedy of the excessive smoke and of their own volition uh, and avoid the necessity of declaring their works a public nuisance. We think so and throw out the suggestion in kindness. So even back then they're thinking, hey, 
we'd like the private industry to find a solution to this and not have to resort to regulation or some kind of government intervention. And, of course, that's not new, right? That, that continues to today, that push-pull. That's right. That's exactly, that's exactly right. And, and, of course, you know, things didn't get better after that. And so um, looking back, the, the earliest regulation that I was able to find is in 1891, and Salt Lake City passed its, its first air quality ordinance um, then. And, and the reason why this is notable is Utah did not become a state until 1896. So this air quality ordinance was passed fully five years before Utah became a state. And so literally, Utah has had air quality regulations on the books for the entire history of the state. Mm. How bad did it get at times? You, you, you use in the paper... Um, the, the phrase air you can chew. Yeah. Yeah, it is, it is a pretty, it was pretty drastic at times. Um, so in eight, in 1919 and to 1920, the, the winter between 1919 and 1920, there was a, a major air quality study, uh, that was done in collaboration with the University of Utah, Salt Lake City, and the U.S. Bureau of Mines. Um, and it was one of the first major air quality studies done in any city across the U.S. And Salt Lake was chosen because we had this really persistent air quality problem because of our inversions and, you know, and the industrialization of the city. And they, they measured a lot of, a lot of different uh, metrics for air quality because there's a lot of different pollutants to measure. Uh, but one really stuck out to me, which was um, they set out jars uh, around the city they're called sootfall jars, and and they measured the average sootfall. So this is just junk that's falling out of the air and, and being collected into these jars. And the units that they measure are tons per square mile per year. And in the railroad and industrial parts of town, um, they're measuring 1,000 tons per square mile per year. And it's just astronomical amount of stuff that's in the air. Yeah, that's... <laughs> <laughs> that's bad if you can just set out a jar and and the gunk from the air will, will settle into it, right? Yeah. Uh, th- this is it had to have an effect on human health, right? Yeah, it it was it had a dramatic effect on human health, and you know back then there was a widespread understanding of this. It. It's it's actually amazing to me how much they understood uh, in in that same era. Uh, 1912, the the Salt Lake uh, Tribune, um, or maybe it was a telegram at the time, um, you know, they wrote a six-part series about uh, the the influence, uh, uh, you know, smoke and air quality. Um, you know, they were really concerned that, you know, one of the, the headline is, the influence on health is the most detrimental. And they're talking about how smoky cities have high death rates from <clears throat> bronchial and pulmonary diseases. Um, so about this time, uh, I'd like to learn a little more about this uh, fellow. A government smoke expert um, f- flew, uh, flew a biplane through Utah's smoke bank. So this is about 1919. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about that. Yeah, so this, this also is another parallel with today. Um, so back then, the... Folks that lived in the Wasatch Front, <clears throat> they thought, you know, they could see the, the, the smelters um, in Murray and in other places kind of like 5, 10 miles away from downtown Salt Lake City. You see these big plumes of smoke coming up. And so 
the what people thought in those days was that the sulfur dioxide uh, was being emitted from these smelters, and um, sulfur dioxide it has a is denser than air, um, and so what they thought was the sulfur dioxide was coming up and you know creating a layer that was trapping the smoke from the coal combustion and things like that, and they, they thought it was a heavy blanket. Because um, they didn't know what an inversion was back then. They they were just looking for some explanation. And so the scientist at the time, he thought, you know, this is ridiculous because the air in the lower levels of the atmosphere are well mixed. You don't get these layers of of a specific, um, you know, element or, or, or species. And so, but he said, hey, let's test this. And so he... Uh, got in his biplane and, and got some flasks, and they, you know, he used a vacuum pump to pull out the air, and then flew up in his biplane at different altitudes and opened his his flasks up, and and then brought them back down and, and measured the sulfur dioxide and showed that no, there wasn't a dense layer of of uh, sulfur dioxide. Um, but it's really striking to me because if you ask people today. Um, along the Wasatch Front, what's the biggest contributor to air pollution? A lot of folks will point towards the refineries or to the mine or other industrial sources and, you know, and say, like, that's a big source of, of air pollution. And, and really what's happened today is that, or over the last several decades, is those industrial sources, you know, they do still contribute to our air pollution, um, but those because they're major sources, those are the places that are the easiest to regulate. And so their emissions have actually gotten a lot better over the years. And now they're about at like 10%-ish contributors to, to some of our fine particulate pollution. And, and instead, the biggest contributors are, you know, cars and homes, um, combustion from vehicles and, and homes. And so, again, this is an interesting parallel to, to, to from back then to today, where the sources, you know, a lot of the pollution is being contributed from, you know, all of us together, um, not just the the main, you know, not not just the big industrial sources that you see. Why do you think we? Why do you think public opinion still points to these, uh, you know, these these this this industry, these plants? You know, it's 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 because it's. I think it's partially human nature. It's what you can see, um, and it's you know, it's harder to see that, you know. It's easier to see one big thing that's contributing a lot to, as compared to, you know, hundreds of thousands of little things that are each contributing just a little bit. And so I think it's I think it's partially human nature and, and very natural. Um, but it's you know this is the power of science that we can actually um, understand the different contributors and and you know use science to understand how we need to move forward and make progress to improve our air quality. And that that was true back then, and it's true today. So this is an upcoming project, I understand. Uh, research is going to fly an airplane through through temperature inversion layer. Yep, that's exactly it. Um, so we've been working on this project for several years now, trying to get it uh, off the ground. But, you know, it was supposed to happen. It was actually supposed to happen this coming winter, but because of COVID, everything got pushed back. So hopefully it'll happen in the next couple of years. But, yeah, we're going to – the plan is to to get a couple of – uh, major research uh, aircraft, and um, during our inversion season, fly them up and down uh, through the inversion layer and study uh, the, the chemistry of how our fine particulates form. And it's actually, we have some pretty unique chemistry here uh, along the Wasatch Front that's different than 
almost everywhere else in the world. And there's still things that we don't understand about the about how the the particulates form. And, and you know, we'll, the the hope is that um, understanding the chemistry will allow us to better be able to target the the you know the thing that we need to reduce to to really tackle the particulates and and improve the air quality a lot. So uh, I don't know about the other researchers, but I I suspect you um, might be thinking of this government smoke expert as you as you conduct this uh, experiment. Yeah, that's right. You know, it's it, I, I thought we were doing this really innovative research and, you know, pushing, pushing the envelope, which we are. Um, but it turns out somebody was, you know, working on a very similar thing, you know, 100 years ago. Mm. Uh, so you write in the paper that um, <coughs> early city planners, early officials, they did understand the effect of mountains on air pollution, right? They didn't, uh, they didn't understand the inversions uh, so much that came later, but uh, they looked around. They did see that the, our, you know, the valleys are bowl-shaped, and, and that had an effect on planning. Yeah, and this is this is another really important point that that I think is just it really illustrates the importance of understanding our history. Um, you know, this is back in the 1890s again, and they were trying to think about you know as our city is developing, where do you want to put the major industry that that is an important part of the growth of the city? Um, and so they they were thinking like, okay, well, let's not put them uh, over by the entrance of the canyons because they knew that the air flows in and out of the canyons every day and that would just blow the air pollution over the whole city. And so, you know, a lot of these folks are pioneers coming from other places and what they thought, you know, kind of the quote in the in the paper is smoke never crosses a river. And so in, in, in some places if you have a very large river, you know, you, you can get a thermal barrier which does, you know, prevent air from moving across. And felt like it it isn't uh, that big of a deal. So they, what, what they thought is, let's put the factories uh, to the west side of the Jordan River, which is in the center of the Salt Lake Valley, and um, and then the air pollution will be you know trapped over there. Um, and of course, the Jordan River is not big enough to create a thermal barrier, and you know we have these inversions that that you know really the the Jordan River doesn't affect it at all. Um, but you know that's so that's why that's actually why a lot of our industrial development and a lot of the factories and, and refineries are located kind of in that part of the city. It's because of urban development decisions back in the 1890s. And of course, you know, now over, over the last, you know, 130 years, we've had infill and, uh, you know, houses, you know, neighborhoods have, have been built in around those areas. And now that's an area of town where we have a lot of environmental justice questions and, um, and, you know, it also contributed to the the historic uh, redlining. So in the 1930s, 1940s, um, in Salt Lake, as well as cities across the country, there was redlining, which is uh, where you, you know, designate certain areas of town where you allow uh, minorities, less desirable areas of town where you allow minorities to, to be able to live. And um, the areas of town that were marked as kind of hazardous on these maps are where they allowed minorities to live and, and to, and that's right where all the factories were, um, that were built up in the, in the 1890s. Um, and so you can see how this, this air pollution plays a role in all these different aspects of the development of the city. This, 
But this article from, from 1890 is also interesting because here's, I'm going to read a quote from the end of it. It says, factories that blacken the city with smoke can be as much of a detriment as they are an advantage. For Salt Lake has as much to expect from the increase she'll receive from persons who will select it as their residence on account of its pure air and cleanliness as it has to gain from factories. And so this really illustrates this, the tension and the acknowledgement that, you know, we need to both be good stewards of the environment as we're growing our economy. And, and really, those two things go hand in hand and are essential to each other. Because if we still had the, the kinds of air quality that we had back then, you know, there would be no city here. No one would want to live here. And so the fact that we've been able to clean up our environment and make progress on air quality over time is what has allowed and enabled the, the economic growth that we've seen and, and the growth of the city and, and the state. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, through line as well. There are many of these, right, as we look back at this history. I wonder, before we go to break, um, what, what lesson do you take from this particular uh, environmental and uh, justice and um, aspect of this, right? The, the early planners uh, thought they were doing a good thing. Indeed, they were, right? To move, move it away from the mouth of the canyons. Um, but what what do we take looking to the future from from this lesson? You know, I think it it really just illustrates the importance when we're talking about major development um, and, and and how the city is structured. You really need to have a long-term perspective on how that's going to impact the city and, you know, and future growth. And so, you know, we're talking, we're dealing with issues that were initiated over 100 years ago. And so, you know, as we're thinking about the inland port, for example, um, that's going to be a major um, industrial development center. And we need to be thinking about how is this going, what is this going to be doing to the city and how is this going to be related to the city 100 years from now? And we need to, you know, that kind of forethought and, and insight will will ensure that it's a success and it actually improves the city and, and it is vital for the, the economic success. So it just just the historical perspective and the long-term planning perspective is really essential. Well, let's do take a break. Uh, we are talking with uh, Logan Mitchell. He's affiliated faculty in the University of Utah's Department of Atmospheric Sciences. He, along with Chris Sikowski, um, who's now at Old Dominion University, uh, authored a paper, interesting uh, look back at the history of air quality in Utah. It's a narrative review, and it's published in the journal Sustainability. We'll have more following this. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with uh, Logan Mitchell. He is affiliated faculty in the University of Utah's Department of Atmospheric Sciences. Um, and he, along with Chris Zakowski, uh, authored a paper recently. Uh, it's titled The History of Air Quality in Utah, a Narrative Review. A lot of through lines here uh, from, you know, going back to Brigham Young times uh, to uh, today. Um, some of the problems the same, uh, some of the way they handled it different, but lessons that can be learned from this history. Uh, so, Logan Mitchell, I would like to start this um, segment of the program talking about the battle for public opinion and misinformation, disinformation. Uh, this, unfortunately, is not new, right? Uh, so maybe mm -hmm. tell me about this fight between 
uh, copper smelters and farmers. This is uh, what late eighteen uh, hundreds. Yeah, and and the you know the beginning part of the twentieth century. You know the 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 smelters the smelters were a, you know a key economic driver you know in the early around the turn of the century, but back then there were no uh, emission controls um, on these smelters, so they emitted all kinds of just absolutely horrific things: the lead, arsenic, sulfur dioxide, etc., in just you know vast quantities. And what was happening was that the the crops and the farms adjacent to the smelters started just dying. It just, it just like a wasteland. And so the farmers were, you know, no, you know, upset about this, obviously, because their crops were all dying and um, individual farmers, you know, didn't have enough money. So eventually they banded together and sued the smelters and the, the smelters then, you know, you know, they said, oh, well, you farmers, you must be bad at farming because your, your, your crops are all dying. It's not our fault. And, you know, eventually it went to court and the, the federal court, uh, you know, came down and decided in favor of the farmers and said, you know, the smelters, you guys need to clean up your act. And, you know, it caused many of the smelters to leave the Salt Lake Valley and to go to less populated areas. Of course, wherever they went, they were followed with by lawsuits and, you know, and over time, gradually, pollution controls, you know, be, were invented, and you know, emissions were, were you know, reduced and and became more under control. Um, but it led it led to this really interesting time period where these the, you know, these smelters and these farmers were in, in conflict, and the smelters were accusing the farmers of quote smoke farming, which is you know not actually farming their farm, but just buying it part of, you know, parcel of land next to a smelter and then like letting the crops die and then, and then suing the farmer as their way of generating income instead of actually trying to farm. So it was a really interesting conflict. Um, and there's a lot of disinformation and, you know, a lot of, a lot of push and pull. There's a, uh, in your paper, you have a, uh, a political cartoon from the Salt Lake Telegram. Um, in, in, in this case, it took the part of the, the smelters, right? They're, this this cartoon is is uh, accusing a farmer of of smoke farming, as you just uh, explained it. Yeah, that's right. And so it's it's just really fascinating to look back and and to to see how they were thinking about this conflict. And you know, this 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 political cartoon is you know obviously kind of making fun of the farmers and the farmers saying, you know, do I have to farm my farm now? And and so, it, you know, it was it was a really it was a really important struggle back then. And you know, eventually, as as the science advanced and um, realized, oh, actually, there are, there are a lot of toxic emissions coming out of these smelters, and and you know, we need to clean that up and probably move them away from population centers. I'd like to skip ahead to the 1980s. Uh, similar. Uh, incident, I think, within the memory of a lot of us, Geneva Steel, um, they uh, they closed for I think more than a year. It was a strike, right? But that that right. that gave scientists a, a chance to you know do a kind of a a study of uh, Geneva Steel in operation versus Geneva Steel silent. Yeah, and this is this is a really fascinating uh, story, um, you know, and and. Uh, Dr. Arden Pope um, down at BYU uh, w- 
was working on this. And, you know, because of the strike and when they closed down for a year, the, the air quality of that year that they were closed down was so much better uh, in Provo uh, because the, the steel plant was shut down. And then when it started back up again, you know, the day it started back up, it was front page news. Uh, Geneva belches back to life with plume of smoke. And you can see there's, you know, on the front page of the Daily Herald, there's the picture of Geneva with just this black cloud of smoke coming out of it and, you know, obviously affecting the air quality in, in Provo. And so people were really upset about it. And there, was, there were uh, letters to the editor literally every day for months on end, you know, people complaining about the air quality and also people saying, you know, Geneva is an essential employer and we need to have them here for the jobs. So there's this really prominent struggle. And so, uh, uh, Dr. Arden Pope, he's, you know, he's a scientist, and so he said, hey, let's try to figure out. And he realized that um, that winter that the Geneva Steel plant wasn't operating because of the labor strike, um, the, the number of hospital admissions for children were actually dramatically lower than usual. And, and so you can see this, you know, very direct uh, health benefit from, from the, the plant being closed. And there was, this is, when this study came out, it was a, it was at a time when the global uh, air quality community was trying to understand the importance of uh, the health effects of particulates. And there were a lot of people who thought, you know, the health effects of particulates uh, weren't that great. Uh, and that has something to do with how they were being measured. You know, they used to measure total suspended particles. Um, but when you measure total suspended particles and look at the mass of that, you know, often you're looking at uh, large particles like, like a dust grain or something like that, that, um, that when, you, when you're breathing it in, your body, like in your nose, the hairs in your nose and your upper respiratory tract can actually just filter that out and they're, they're, they don't affect your health. They might be a nuisance um, or irritating, but they're not going to, you know, give you asthma, send you to the hospital. And so... But as we, as we have learned more, or as they're learning more, and they're measuring smaller and smaller particles, wait a second, the, the, the relationship with health is much stronger. And, and Dr. Arden Pope's research really, it was kind of like a, it was a lightning bolt across the scientific community. Uh, here is the, it was the best case study at the time showing the, the dramatic, uh, you know, reduction in childhood asthma hospitalizations. Um, and, and and he went on to look at other health effects as well um, that anyone had ever done in the world, and so it really wrote it really brought to everyone's awareness the importance of of particulate pollution. Now, here's an especially troubling uh, kind of aftermath of this: uh, the the studies not good for Geneva Steel, right? Uh, so they uh, they commission they commission a study of their own, right? That's right. Um, so they brought in a scientist, kind of a, a hired gun for hire, um, and it was it was really disappointing because you know he just he didn't really do a very he didn't do a thorough analysis at all. Uh, he just you know kind of massaged the data and pointed to to something else. He said there was you know being caused by some you know seasonal virus, um, even though Dr. Harden Pope had, had controlled for that and you know compared to other you know, valleys along the Wasatch Front to, to make sure he wasn't, uh, he was actually isolating the right, the right thing. And, um, 
And then, you know, the, the, the part of it that's really, that was really unfortunate was that um, this, this person who he brought in, you know, he just, he just, you know, came up with some stuff. He did kind of a hack job and then he started giving presentations and because he was a scientist, he's a credentialed scientist and, you know, talking about an issue, the press covered it. And, um, you know, there was a lot of confusion about, you know, who was right, even though one, one of the entities had done a lot of research and had controlled for a lot of things and had, you know, published it in the peer-reviewed literature and the other person had just, you know, really looked at the data for just a couple of weeks and then was giving presentations on it. Um, and, you know, it took years and years. Uh, eventually, the, this, this other scientist did publish a paper, I don't know, four or five years later. Uh, but it's in this really obscure journal, and it's, you know, there's very little information in it. And, you know, it, it, over the, you can kind of, now we have the benefit of, of hindsight, and we can look back uh, through the course of time, and we can see that, you know, that paper absolutely did not hold up scientifically. And, you know, Arden, uh, Dr. Arden Pope has, has gone on to, you know, publish hundreds and hundreds of, of papers, and the our understanding of the importance of the health effects of air quality has only grown over time, and it actually still continues to grow. We're still learning more about the the health impacts of, of particulates and, and other pollutants uh, as time goes on. I want to quote this directly. You write in your paper about this. Uh, the disinformation effort to create misleading news coverage had the desired effect of creating an artificial controversy that muddled public understanding of the health impacts of air quality in Utah for years. Um, this is, we're, we're seeing this, right? We have seen this with climate change, right? With other things, you know, letting alone politics. Um, how would you, I don't know, what would you say? How, do, how, how can the public see through this, uh, you know, get at the, at the truth since, Propaganda is, is uh, certainly uh, being pushed out there in some cases. You know, it is, it is the, the challenge of our time. Um, disinformation is one of the, the clearest threats to our democracy and um, in many other aspects of life. And the, it's, it's really important that we all become digitally literate and, uh, and we understand how to, uh, what is disinformation and, um, and we, it's important. It's imperative. We learn how to spot it, and um, you know, I, I try to just not uh, raise the raise the profile of it, and um, and you know, there's a lot that we know from science, and and it's important that uh, the media also um, takes the time to understand. Um, you know, we live in a compli com complicated world, and it's important that we understand the context and, you know, can approach topics with integrity. Let's take another break. When we come back, I wanted to talk about advances in science um, and uh, we'll look to the future as well. Uh, what all this history um, tells us uh, about the future, potentially into the future. We're talking with uh, Logan Mitchell, who's with the University of Utah. Um, he is with the uh, University of Utah's Department of Atmospheric Sciences. He, along with Chris Zakowski, authored a paper titled The History of Air Quality in Utah, a Narrative Review that's published in the journal Sustainability. You can read that if you'd like. We have a, we'll have a link here on our website. 
Um, and uh, we'll have much more following this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about the history of air quality in Utah. Uh, that's the subject of a, a new paper titled The History of Air Quality Utah Narrative Review. It's published in the journal Sustainability. And uh, the authors are Chris Zukowski and Logan Mitchell. We have Logan Mitchell with us. He's with University of Utah's Department of Atmospheric Sciences. So, Logan Mitchell, um, I'm looking at, just parenthetically, in the paper, uh, you reproduce from the Salt Lake Telegram. This is March of 1941. Um, the, today's smoke is what it's called. And I guess it's, it's an air quality indicator. You know, today's uh, air quality is good or bad or whatever. So uh, I guess back in the 1940s they were doing this. That's right. Um, in, in, during that time in 1941, um, they were looking at a new, looking at, you know, more air quality regulations. And so they were trying to help people understand, you know, here's this thing that is affecting us every day. And so they ran a daily um, little, little, just a little note in the corner of the, the paper showing, talking about today's smoke, today's air quality. I want to call from the paper. This I hadn't known about these episodes. There's some areas where you know mortality was very, very high in some periods. Um, let's see. The, this time period, talking about 30s and 40s, also saw several high-profile, high-mortality air pollution episodes associated with wintertime inversions and industrial pollution, such as in the Meuse Valley, Belgium, 1930, Denora, Pennsylvania, 1948, London Fog Event, 1952, I don't think we've had anything quite that bad in Utah, although, you know, the air can get pretty bad. Yeah, I mean, these these events were were really extreme, um, and they were all associated with inversions, actually. And, um, you know, in London, London was a much bigger city, and, you know, there was, there was just really extreme uh, air quality, and, you know, thousands of people died, and that's probably an undercount. Um, you know, looking back at the historical record in terms of the the air pollution impacts, but you know these are really extreme events, and it was, you know, as time was going on in the you know 40s and 50s and 60s, air pollution was getting a lot worse, and that's right when, you know, uh, vehicle ownership was really taking off, and that became a really important source of of pollution. Uh, tell me a bit about you. You you treat this extensively in the paper. Um, we probably don't have time to treat treat this really fully, but tell me briefly about advances in science over time. What what are a couple of the most interesting uh, bits of that history that stand out to you? Yeah, I mean we've we've come to understand the um, the importance locally here. We've come to important understand the importance of inversions. Um, and in how our chemistry, our atmospheric chemistry, reacts or, or, or relates to the atmospheric stability, the inversions, and um, and just how all of that comes together to make the you know makes our air quality challenges a lot more severe than many other places. Of you know many other cities that are of similar size don't have the same kinds of air challenges, air quality challenges that we have here, and you know. You know, over time, we've gotten a better understanding of emission sources, of the chemistry, of, you know, especially the importance of precursor chemicals. So, like, for example, ozone is something that we're working on now um, and is an important issue. And the, the state's actually going through a, an, an implementation plan to, 
to work on controlling ozone pollution, but ozone is not directly emitted. It's, you know, it's the nitrogen oxides and the VOCs that are emitted. And, you know, when in the presence of sunlight, that actually forms ozone. And so it's a really complicated interplay between emissions and chemistry and the, the air moving around that really contributes to the, the challenges that we have. So um, taking a look at this history and now looking to the future, what, uh, what are the top conclusions that you, that you draw? Yeah, so one of the most important trends to, to look at is, is we have improved. We've, we've probably today, our air quality is probably better than at any time since the 1890s, I think. Um, so we have, ha- we have made steady progress slow and steady progress improving our air quality. And the source of pollution has changed over time. It, you know, it used to be wood burning and then it was coal. And then now we're seeing a lot of uh, our pollution coming from petroleum combustion, uh, gasoline and, and natural gas. Um, but, you know, what really, in, in, in throughout history, at, at every point in history, they said, okay, our solution is gonna be this next big thing. Um, so in the 1930s, that was natural gas. Natural gas was introduced in the Salt Lake Valley in 1930, and that was seen as an important solution or important way to improve our air quality, which it was because it was reducing coal combustion. And um, but it still it still is a, combi- a form of combustion that's you know emitting stuff into the air. And you know as we've gotten bigger and as, as we've grown, you know that becomes then the next problem. And so what we haven't had. Uh, up until now, is a true form of clean energy that, that doesn't emit anything. And you know, it's really interesting. Back in in, in 1990, uh, Governor Bangor commissioned a study looking at looking for solutions. And they said, you know, one of the options we could we could as a state we could really try to tackle this problem. But when we looked in the details of how we'd actually do it, you know, it became there's not it became really difficult because there's not there's all of these uh, technical, economic, uh, socioeconomic, and, and political issues that, that became really challenging because there aren't these solutions that are available. And that is what has changed today. We're starting to see a lot of electric cars on the road. You know, uh, it's going slowly, and other places are you know, a lot further ahead of us than, than, than that, but we are starting to see them take off in Utah. We're starting to see um, heat pumps being installed at homes. Heat pumps run on electricity, and they're way more efficient than gas uh, furnaces, and they have zero emissions. And um, and they're you know you can get a heat pump for your for your home heating as well as your water heating. And we're starting to see a whole bunch of homes become all electric, and and they're they're really cost competitive now. And you know there's been some federal legislation recently that has. Uh, is going to have a lot of incentives to make these things a lot more accessible for folks. And, you know, in the next several decades, we're going to see dramatic further improvement in our air quality because we've got these new technologies that are now economically viable. And in many cases, they're actually the cheapest option available. And so it's, it's a really exciting time. And, you know, looking back at our history, it can sometimes be, you know, frustrating or, uh, you know, it feels like we've made so little progress because we're still working on many of the same challenges that we've been, you know, facing for the last 150 years. 
Um, but we've made steady progress, and we will continue to make progress. And, you know, in, in my eyes, I see a big acceleration coming up in the future. And um, it would be great if we could, you know, accelerate that and, and, and get it even sooner. Um, but, you know, it's coming. It's, it's, it's really inevitable at this point. It's coming, and it's just a matter of how soon, you know, are we uh, on the leading edge of this adoption? And, you know, and, and it's really a, it, being on the leading edge would be a major economic opportunity because, you know, we can see that these things are happening, and there's, there's people around the world that are working on solving technical challenges and inventing new products. To, to take advantage of, of all of this new technology. And, um, and if that's going to invented, it's going, those, those solutions are going to be invented somewhere. And the, you know, the, the choice we're facing today is, are those things going to be invented and are those jobs going to be created in a place like Utah or are they going to be created in California or Germany or China? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, uh, that, very helpful. No, we'll, we'll leave uh, that. We're out of time. Uh, interesting paper, and we'll have a link uh, on our website um, for the History of Air Quality Utah Narrative Review. And uh, Logan Mitchell, who is with the uh, University of Utah's Department of Atmospheric Sciences, one of the authors, has joined us today. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And we'll go out as we do on Tuesdays with uh, Citizens Academy and Richard Ratliff. Welcome to Session 6 of Citizens Academy 2022, presented by Utah Public Radio. I'm Richard Ratliff. In the first five sessions introducing political relationism, the main point was that healthy relationships make politics easier, more civil, and more productive, regardless of political party or philosophy. Turning to today's question, how does political relationism apply to current real issues like education? In the 1950s and 1960s, there was a quiet but profound argument among education leaders over a classical vis-a-vis a practical education. A classical education emphasized philosophy and logic, literature, social studies, Greek and Latin, mathematics and science. Civility, etiquette, and manners were an important part of that mix. A practical education more directly applied to vocational and professional training. I was young then, aware of the conversation, but I did not realize the serious consequences until many years later. The story, however, begins much earlier. Thomas Jefferson said that our new government could be sustained only by an educated people who understand the workings of free society without ripping itself apart. In those early days, our government was in the hands of a relatively small, privileged group of well-educated, highly capable, profound thinkers. Even then, this experiment in Republican democracy was sorely tested and almost succumbed on more than one occasion from internal strife. It was not an easy ride. But those early political pioneers persevered, extending a classically-based education to a growing broad base of the population who then demanded and won a seat at the tables of local and general government. Several generations saw the political fare of the nations prosper, also the nation's economy. It was not perfect, but the fortuitous combination of democracy and free market capitalism grounded in the fundamentals of classically-based education was working. Eventually, civil war and two world wars tested our nation's mettle. 
literally and figuratively. During the Civil War, Congress passed the Morrill Act, creating a network of land-grant universities emphasizing applied disciplines such as agriculture and engineering. Following World War II, the GI Bill advanced educational opportunity for millions of Americans. The dual goals of economic development and educational opportunity raise the question, what kind of education will best serve our country and our people? Classically based education or a more practical approach? High schools began teaching vocational courses. Universities expanded their professional engineering, law, and medical colleges. Professional journalism, accounting, and finance programs were introduced. A huge network of community colleges specializing in job training sprouted across the country. And after the Soviet Union sent Sputnik into orbit in 1957, physical and mechanical science took a leading role in our nation's higher education strategy. Demand for classically-based education began to decline. Students majoring in history or language arts will almost certainly be asked, how can you make a living with that? Is there something wrong with this picture? More to the point, what do classical and practical education have to do with political relationism? Indeed, professional and vocational education are necessary to work our economy. But when Thomas Jefferson observed that our government cannot succeed without an educated populace, I doubt that he was thinking of building automobiles. In order to create and sustain a healthy society, education must include as much citizenship and relationship management as mathematics and technology. Otherwise, we might wind up with jet planes, but violence in our streets, schools, homes, and in our politics. And that seems to be where we are today. Despite many admirable attempts in recent years to teach and develop soft skills, like conflict management, problem solving, anger management, etc., we are facing a terrible turmoil in our society, even to the point of current calls from some for another civil war. Our society won't last long with escalating violence among our people and institutions. We cannot pass enough laws to tame a willfully disobedient and violent people, no matter how skilled they are in industrial arts. We must teach our people how to develop and sustain a livable society, including healthy, workable relationships. Society is simply a big bundle of relationships, and any society is as good or bad as its relationships. We can do better. This is Richard Ratliff and Citizens Academy. Thank you for listening. Till next time.